This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Ros Taylor and with me to talk about the week to come is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ros. The top story, as ever recently, of course, is Ukraine. And from what the media is saying, President Zelensky says he's ready to discuss neutral status. But on the other hand, we also had over the weekend intelligence that Putin was determined to try and split Ukraine in two. What seems to be going on? Well, I mean, it looks increasingly like a war of attrition. And it looks like a war of attrition that is so slow moving that unless you watch very closely and for a long time, it looks like a stalemate. Russia is still the dominant party, okay? It has the, the muscle to win this. So we we need to be very cautious of sort of over-optimism because they can still throw stuff at this that will mean they come out on top, especially if they don't care how many civilians they kill. They have the strength in depth that means they can go at this for much, much longer until they get the outcome they want. Now, that's the the background to Zelensky sort of putting neutrality back on the table and a compromise on the Donbass region, which he also mentioned, for the next round of negotiations. I don't know whether it will make a difference. The conflict is going very badly for Russia because it, you know, everything needs to be compared to the expectations people will have had before the conflict. And so I think everyone expected that Russia would roll over Ukraine very, very quickly, including the Russian public. And so it is going badly for them. And Zelensky does seem to be providing Putin now with an off-ramp, basically. The caveat is that Zelensky is saying neutrality on NATO and a, a deal for the Donbass region will need to be put to the people of Ukraine for approval. And that includes all the refugees. So Zelensky is saying that this will have to be done in about a year's time while the region stabilizes and everyone comes back to the Ukraine so they can vote in a referendum for the future of a country, which seems to me quite a big caveat, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Joe Biden made a comment about getting rid of Putin or words to that effect, which his aides quickly rode back on over the weekend. And yeah, Macron yeah. in particular seemed quite annoyed about it. What happened there? Well, look, it's a gaffe. Basically, it, you know, it would be a serious issue if the White House had rode behind him because it would have meant there's a difference in actual policy between the outcomes people want. But as it happens, they didn't. It was just a gaffe. I mean, it will be exploited by the Kremlin, for sure, to say, look, we told you this is what they want to do. They want to interfere in our right for, to self-determination. 
but it's just someone very, very important saying a, a, the wrong thing at a press conference, and it happens all the time. More importantly, I think there was a, a, an interview with Zelensky at The Economist, which was very direct and very clear about the different camps that exist in the West. And he talks about the countries that don't mind a long conflict because basically it exhausts Russia militarily. The US is probably in that camp. China is probably in that camp for that matter. There are other countries that want the war to end quickly for trade reasons because Russia is a big market for them and the result, the, uh, their uh, economies are suffering. Germany is probably in that camp. China is probably partly in that camp as well. Th- there, are, there are other countries which definitely want Ukraine to be victorious because they see Putin uh, as an existential threat. Zelensky puts the UK in that camp. I don't agree with that assessment. I think it's a naive one. And, and then he talks about the, the, the smaller countries which are concerned with humanitarian issues. And I would guess that a lot of the countries around Ukraine that are taking the bulk of refugees are probably in that camp. So they want the conflict resolved quickly because they know they cannot absorb sort of millions of refugees coming to their territory all the time. And then the fifth camp, he talks about a, 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 a sort of a category of small country which is considered the the offshore office of the Russian Federation. I would guess he's talking about places like Cyprus when he makes that point, which relies on oligarch wealth for its uh, economic well-being. But uh, as I said, I think Zelensky's view of the UK is rather a rosy one, because I think the UK is just as much in that last camp as it is in the in the second one. So, you know, there are differences in policy. They're no different to anything else. So I, I think we must be careful not to overplay them. If you look behind any military operation historically, you will find that the allies on either side had differences of objectives. They had differences of what they wanted to achieve. I mean, you know... <laughs> A huge example of that is look at the the allies in you know the Second World War, where the US, the UK, and Russia were on the same side, and yet they were keeping huge secrets from each other, especially about nuclear weapon development, and ended up, you know, with a fallout being decades of a Cold War. So we we really mustn't overplay those. Fissures. I think everyone in the West is pushing broadly in the same direction, albeit at different speeds and for different reasons. Yes, you're right to say he was. He certainly had a lot of praise for Johnson, possibly because Britain is sending some Star Street anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine, which which can be deployed against Russian warplanes, which I imagine has made a difference. But he was quite damning of Macron, and he said he was afraid of Russia. But yes, I uh, he, he does he does seem to be trying to to draw comparisons which may not be particularly helpful sure and maybe being afraid of russia is the prudent position you know maybe maybe actually if you know if the entire west became 
as involved aggressively in the provision of arms as the UK is, maybe that would create an imbalance that would force Russia into an even bigger response. So perhaps the fact that there are slightly more hawkish and slightly more dovish people in the same camp is actually provides quite a good balance. I understand completely why Zelensky would like everyone to be in the former camp, but from a point of view of uh, the West, it may not be smart for everyone to be quite as saber-rattly as Johnson is at the moment, or as Biden was with that, those comments over the weekend. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's move back to Westminster and Rishi Sunak, who had a pretty bad week, it has to be said, with the spring statement last week, getting a very, very negative reception. And in fact, a profile by the Sunday Times yesterday, which described him as friendless in cabinet. <laughs> and this afternoon he's got to appear in front of the Treasury Select Committee. So again, this is not looking good. Uh, what, what's going should on? should be a spicy session, actually. Um, the, the Treasury Select Committee is chaired by Mel Stride, who has openly called for the national insurance contribution rights to be delayed. So I, I will expect some quite hostile questioning. We recorded Oh God, What Now, our sister podcast, together last week, didn't we? And, yes, we did. and we predicted much of this, I'm really glad to say. We predicted that this was, you know, a very shruggy reaction to a very big crisis and that if it began to unravel, it would unravel badly and quickly. And that's what has happened. The Financial Times has an interesting report today that the government's energy strategy will be delayed again. So it was due this week. Johnson said it was due in a few days on the 9th of March. And still it's being delayed with reports that basically Kwasi Kwarteng and Rishi Sunak are at loggerheads, that uh, Sunak wants to hold out against any big ticket spending commitments and and Kwarteng wants to um, uh, sort of splash out on onshore wind and solar, which I know you're a supporter of. The Treasury is basically insisting that they're poor value for money. And we're back to basically the green crap position that, that plagued the previous, uh, or rather one before, uh, Conservative administration's approach to green renewables. There's also different fissures. We know that Johnson is briefing on Sunak and Sunak is briefing on Johnson. Rumbling under the surface is the police investigation into Partygate. How will that play into a Whitehall that is in open warfare between 
departments. What you know, what happens if that decision comes out this week or next week, while you know everyone's throwing knives at each other and briefing each other? Michael Gove is reportedly briefing against Priti Patel. Priti Patel is reportedly briefing against Michael Gove. There's a delicious quote in the Mail on Sunday from uh, a Priti Patel surrogate that goes, Michael's last attempt to brief himself a promotion saw him demoted to local government. If he keeps on at this rate, he will be at the Welsh office before the end of summer, <laughs> which I think is quite delicious. On the other hand, you know, if, if Patel does go and she could become a useful idiot, as it were, for, for Johnson over the small boats crisis and over her handling of Ukrainian refugees, then it could be Michael Gove who takes her role as Home Secretary. Who knows? It could be. He He's in a good position to do so, so who knows? Yeah, well, plenty plenty to watch there. Let's, let's move to the Royals. And some quite surprising coverage uh, today, I noticed in the papers, of the Caribbean tour, which has been widely viewed as not quite a disaster, but let's say cack-handed at best, with some some very dubious photo opportunities and Mm. a feeling that William wasn't getting to grips with the issues at stake in the Caribbean. But then clearly there have been briefings over the weekend to the Monday papers with the line that uh, William wants to learn from this experience and abandon the old firm rule of never complain, never explain. So he does seem to have realised how badly this has gone, doesn't he? Yeah, um, and you will remember that early last week, I was talking about this story as flying under the radar because there was so little reporting, not of the tour. The tour itself was being reported as such tours are always reported, like a sort of red carpet event. But there were very few reports of how badly it was going. And it's gone really badly. Like three territories are now looking at starting the constitutional process of you know, getting people's opinion on, on whether they should become a republic. One of them announcing it literally the day after William and Kate left there, Belize, I think it was. I think they will be, the royals will be really quite sore at the organisers of this tour because it seems to me that a lot of it was foreseeable and preventable, especially in terms of photo opportunities and stuff like that. A lot of it was set up in such a bad way that you think, how did you not see this? Coming. I mean, I'm I'm no royalist, as you know, um, but I but I do, for instance, remember that you know there were early tours of the then very young Queen Elizabeth and her consort that didn't go really very well until the second half of their big tour of Australia, which seemed to sort of switch them back to. Popularity And also Prince Philip and Princess Diana, some of their early stuff had gone quite badly. So maybe it's a natural process of cutting your teeth at these things. Or maybe there is genuine movement afoot. And what needs to happen is the UK, because this is a UK matter, not a royal matter, the UK needs to rethink its position 
in the Commonwealth because it still seems to me that the UK sees itself as the dominant entity in the Commonwealth rather than as an equal member of a a sort of brotherhood of nations. And maybe that's where the change needs to happen. Maybe all this stuff about, you know, Empire 2.0 and global Britain and buccaneering Britain and Brexit, maybe all of that stuff has actually picked at some scabs that have to do with Britain's colonial and imperial past. And maybe what needs to come out of that is an adult conversation about how to make the Commonwealth fit for the 21st century. Yeah, reading between the lines, it seemed that William would had been a bit surprised by the reception he got mm. in the Caribbean, and perhaps he blames some of his aides for that. Is there anything else that might emerge this week that we should, we should be following? Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 the weird thing that's not in the news is COVID. The R number is above one again. We have the highest number of cases in the UK ever. Testing ceases to be free this week. So how do we monitor what's going on and how do we monitor for variants? My concern is that we are potentially back to March 2020 when, if you remember, the government stopped all testing because they didn't have, at that time, they didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have the tests, so they needed to prioritise NHS workers. But they stopped all testing community testing, which meant that they were flying blind to a certain extent. The the problem with this disease is that, you know, the hospital admissions and deaths come at a considerable time lag from infections. And so if hospital admissions and deaths are the only indicator you're watching for signs of trouble, for signs, for instance, of a new variant, you know, the, the, the huge infection pool in the UK currently raises the probability of a new variant. So if all you're looking at is hospital admissions and deaths as an indicator that there's something going badly wrong, then you're already too late to fix it because it means that you have a built-in three-week wave of cases that are coming, and there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe, you know, I'm overly risk-averse and cautious. Maybe, you know, the people who are, who are saying, let's throw caution to the wind and just try this thing out because it's the only way we'll see what happens, uh, maybe they're right. Maybe seasonally, this is the right time to do it. The weather will start getting warmer. People will start congregating more outside. I see all of those arguments. I see all every single sort of for argument for, you know, throwing caution to the wind. What I don't understand is the decision to monitor what goes on less. In my mind, data is power. On this issue. Information is key. And I do not understand the government's decision for money reasons to stop monitoring what is going on with this thing. Looking ahead at Parliament, maybe we should mention that the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill comes back to the Commons this week with changes from the Lords, and we'll get an indication of where the government is at, whether they will change all that stuff 
back or accept some of it. The school's white paper is to be published later this week. That will be quite a a big one. Labour are already dismissing it as basically a, a restructuring exercise at a time when government should be focusing actually on what's going on inside the classroom rather than pushing forward their multi-academy trust model. The Elphick story is, I think, the dark horse for one to watch. This week there was an astounding expose by the Sunday Times um, revealing how former Tory MP Charlie Elphick spent years suing the paper to prevent it from revealing that a woman had accused him of rape. He is now convicted of related offences and how he used basically libel law to silence her. And there are hugely disturbing elements to this story. For instance, how Theresa May restored the whip to him just in time to vote for her when she was facing a confidence vote, how his wife Natalie ended up with his seat, his old Dover seat, not clear at all how she ended up being selected by her local party, and a a lot of talk that there was a very grubby deal of her inheriting his seat to keep it warm from him while supporting him in court. There is a lot of meat there, and I suspect there will be quite a bit of fallout from that story. And there was a lot of drama at the Oscars, but it didn't have much to do with the awards. What happened last night? I mean, ultimately, one celebrity made a joke about another celebrity's wife and the second celebrity got upset and smacked him upside the face. Story of many Saturday nights in a British pub. Story of many a Saturday night, yes. It was all very schoolboyish, in my view. There may be a conversation to be had about, you know, what's fair game for comedy and what's crossing a line. There may be a conversation to be had about whether it's ever justified to put your hands on another person, which I don't think it is. There may be a conversation to be had about, you know, shenanigans like that overshadowing the achievement of a lot of people, you know, who, you know, the first queer actress of colour to win a supporting actor Oscar, the first deaf actor to win a supporting actor Oscar, you know, Jane Campion winning as director for Power of the Dog. There was a lot of good stuff that happened in the awards ceremony last night, and none of it will be talked about except this, in my view, playground nonsense. Lots to watch. Alex, thanks so much. Thank you, Rose. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Rose Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Rose Taylor with Alex Andrade. The producers were Yelena Sokhanievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.